there's always a million wonderful excuses not to write. <laughs> and I don't, I don't think anyone except other writers appreciate how grueling the writing process is. Thinking about writing is great and sitting down to write is great and having written is wonderful, but the actual process of writing isn't always all that fun. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Now, let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. It's Friday the 8th of April and I'm recording this intro just before this episode goes to air. You may be able to hear some rain on the roof and possibly a chainsaw in the background as a tree has come down on the fence. It's being chopped down as we speak or cut up. And yeah, if you are anywhere on the east coast of Australia as I am and you're experiencing the horrendous weather conditions, I hope that you're safe and that your house, your belongings, your land, your loved ones, your animals are all safe and that hopefully everything dries out very soon. So today on the Convo Couch, we have another special Convo Couch conversation. A couple of weeks ago, we had Ray Cairns and Danuka McKenzie, two debut authors discussing their experience as uh, thriller authors, both with new books out. If you've missed that episode, make sure you catch it. We've had lots of great feedback on that. Last week, we had Audrey Huey chatting about how to plan your time, your writing time and, and your life and to create that life writing balance. And today I have a really special conversation between Meredith Jaffe and Genevieve Novak. So Meredith's taking the host seat today on the podcast. If you don't know Meredith, she's the author of four novels for adults, The Tricky Art of Forgiveness, which is her most recent book and is just out a few weeks ago, The Dressmakers of Yarrandara Prison, The Making of Christina and The Fence. She's also written uh, the first in a children's series, Horse Warrior, which was published in 2019 and has contributed a short story, Emergency Undies, to the 2019 Funny Bones Anthology. You may also remember Meredith as the director of StoryFest, a fabulous literary festival on the south coast of New South Wales. And you may have come across her in one of her many stints as a facilitator at a writers' festival, either in Sydney or in the regions. Genevieve Novak is our guest on the podcast today. Genevieve is a writer from Melbourne who writes romantic comedies, content and really long text messages. After studying creative writing at the University of Adelaide, Genevieve worked as a copywriter, social media manager and producer in Adelaide, Sydney and Melbourne. Her debut novel, No Hard Feelings, has just been released at the end of March with HarperCollins. And I have to say, I'm really looking forward to reading this one, but I've had the pleasure of editing this episode between Meredith and Genevieve. It sounds like there are lots of episodes in the main character, Penny's life, that we're going to relate to as women and plenty of awkward 
moments, plenty of laugh out loud moments, and I think there's going to be lots in there to keep us entertained. This is a great chat between Genevieve and Meredith. Uh, Meredith is a more experienced author, has had a number of books out. For Genevieve, this is her debut. So it's really interesting to see the sort of conversation flow between a, a debut author, somebody who has had more novels out in the world, and just as they share their experiences of writing. There's also plenty of chat about the book. It is, in a way, a new release uh, feature author episode as well as a Convo Couch special. So you're going to find out a lot about no hard feelings during the course of this interview. Grab a cuppa, sit back, enjoy this episode and this chat between Meredith Jaffe and Genevieve Novak. Hello, my name is Meredith Jaffe and I'm thrilled to be joined today on The Conversation Couch for Rights for Women with the lovely new author to us all, Genevieve Novak. Hello, Genevieve. How are you going? Thank you for having me. Oh, it's such a delight. It's one of my favourite things is interviewing other writers. So I'm really thrilled that you could join us today. And I should say that we're talking today about Genevieve's brand new debut novel, No Hard Feelings, which will be out on the 30th of March, which as we record this is tomorrow. So happy publication day for tomorrow, Genevieve. Thank you. Full of nerves about it and just wait. <laughs> It is a bit of a nerve-wracking moment. No Hard Feelings is a romantic drama and it's. I just want to talk to Genevieve today about not only the story itself but the writing journey and her road to publication because I know so many of us love to hear everyone else's tales, how we got our scars, as it were, <laughs> or not, mm -hmm. as the case may be. No Hard Feelings is hilarious and heartbreaking. There are times when I literally was just wanting to reach through the pages and go, Penny, no, stop, of the lovely Penny Moore, who's a slightly neurotic, anxious 26-year-old girl in the middle of that decade that is just one of the, I reckon, it's every bit as hard as your teens, I reckon, being in your 20s. So, Genevieve, welcome, and let me start with Penny. Tell us about Penny. how Penny came into creation uh, for you. Oh, lovely Penny. I, so I've wanted to write in this genre for a long time. So I've had an idea for someone like Penny for a long time. I've probably been carrying her with me for 15 years. And so when it came time to sit down and write the novel and let's do this, uh, Penny was the only choice. There was no other protagonist that I even considered starting with because she's been she's been my girl for a long time and because I'd carried her around for such a long time I knew quite a lot about her subconsciously so once it came time to sit down and start writing about her it was time to dig rather than I didn't have to explore her I had to let her wander off and then figure out what that meant myself so it was a bit of a reverse experience in in that way but she's, there's a little bit of penny in everyone in their 20s, I think. We're all overwhelmed and confused and panicked and hungover. Relatable is, is Penny's key trait. She's good and bad in equal measure. I think all of us, she, Penny is our own worst enemy in so many ways, but mm. that's just aided and abetted by the three sort of key relationship areas that we see in the novel. Mm. So we'll probably just tackle them one at a time, but those three kind of circles for, for Penny are her friendship group. So she's best friends with Beck and Annie and has been for some years. Her love life, which it's a walking catastrophe with the mm -hmm. rather dreadful Max uh, mm -hmm. when P Paul Penny just can't see the, the woods for the trees with Max. 
And then she's left a really big secure job because she's bored and she's gone to work for a smaller agency. She's a marketing, digital marketing, social media kind of person. And she has gone to work for Scout and she has this boss, Margot, and it's a really bad career move. Went great Mm. in the interview, but it's been downhill ever since. So let's just start with her friendship circle with Annie and Beck. So this is Mm -hmm. one of the moving parts of the story. Talk about that 20-something and the whole relationship online kind of stuff Mm. of of Beck and Annie? Yeah, when you're in your 20s, your friends are your family. You know, they're who you spend all your time with and you become them and they become you. And it's really difficult when that starts to, to branch off. Your first five years, five years of your 20s, you're so close and you're at uni together and every weekend is, is just assumed that you'll spend time together. And then as we get older, life takes us in different directions. Our jobs get more demanding or we start relationships that take priority. And so when people start deviating away from that core friendship group, it's really destabilizing and it's really scary that oh this is real life and it won't always feel like we're all each other has so when when Annie goes off and and starts having great career success and Beck skews towards her new relationship Penny just feels very lost and alone and stagnant and it's hard not to compare her life to these two people who she loves who are having different successes in different ways while she's having no success in any of the ways. It's so hard not to compare yourself to to anyone, but certainly to your friends is just what a burden. And even though it's not a competition, there is a sort of element to it, isn't it? Like, oh, they're more advanced than I am and that I'm doing something wrong because I'm not at finding the right guy that I want to spend the rest of my life with or being promoted to, you know, to along this path that I've got so clearly cut out ahead of mm-hmm. me, like, like Annie does, isn't it? It's not just that your lives diverge. It's like feeling where's my, my place in all of that, isn't there? Yeah, it's I have nothing going for me and they have so much and that you're not competing with them. It's not a matter of Penny wanting her job to be better than Annie's. It's just competing with the concept of, life success and competing with yourself in comparison to other people who seem to have it easier. Yeah. And then this is also compounded by her inability to see the woods for the trees, as I said about Max. Mm. So can we ju- mm. can you just explain for everyone who, how they first started going out, what, they, the, what the romantic what arc is, shall we say, mm-hmm. for Max and Penny? Sure. So Max and Penny met while they were at uni and were hot and heavy for, I think it was about a year that they were together. And it was this wonderful kind of moment of opportunity for Penny. She was finishing up her degree and she was in this great relationship and everything was going to be great from here on out. It was a lovely, positive, um, optimistic moment for her. And in the five years since it has gone downhill and Max has waned in his interest, they broke up, but stayed in touch in that way that so many of our unavailable boyfriends do. They just know when we're, we're feeling low and that's when they reappear miraculously. And they've had this off and on casual relationship for years and years since. And she keeps trying to reclaim this old love that no longer exists for him. And he's very clear about, no, thanks. Just what we're doing is fine. This casual sex is casual arrangement is great for me so let's not change it and she does not hear it she just no matter how loud he says it no I'm not interested in that reality thank you so I'll just keep trying to remind him how wonderful 
I am. And it does not work. No, and it's that awful, you do it really well, but that awful sense of desperation on the page from Penny mm. and that throwing herself at him, which is like mm. the very last, you know, thing you should ever do in any relationship. Mm. <laughs> anyway, mm. and she just forgives so much that's unforgivable about his behaviour. And one of the things I thought was really interesting about how you played her friendship group and the Max relationship in particular was the use of social media, not only Instagram, but you can stalk to your heart's content without them knowing that you're following them around, which she does, of (laughs) course. But also, I guess, I don't think you call it WhatsApp, I can't remember, but yeah, there's that chat group, chat room vibe as well. And as a narrative device, it's really interesting to explain to the listeners what we're talking about here with the the little snippets of dialogue sure as a means of communication throughout the book I use text messages and group chats largely because it's just how we communicate if we had to wait to interact with each other face to face the story wouldn't move along so the kind of politics of text messages are such an interesting thing to to unpack because whether it's people seeing your messages and not responding or whether you're looking for subtext in something that I've said that they might not have meant at all. It's a very opaque platform onto which it's very, it's really easy to project all of your own insecurities and thoughts. And it's all in your head, basically. Whereas in person, that's not, it's much easier to understand a situation that you're dealing with face to face as it is behind your phone. It's, yeah, it's deliberately murky and that is used to either people's advantage or disadvantage. And also, as often happens in the novel, is that she can see that they've seen the message or the three mm. little ellipses, the ellipses come up, and, and, but they, mm. yeah, and yet there's no message that's forthcoming. So it's, it's also yeah. a really interesting device, not only to show the communication that is normalised or naturalised, but to show the spaces in the communication mm. and how much we all read mm. into silence. Yeah, yeah. The empty spaces that are not empty. There is so much thought that that Penny pours into the silences between her friends and Max and you know all of it it she has enough neuroses to fill up that space and then some and she certainly does and then that lovely bit where she if she actually rings somebody that's how desperate she is that I really do want to speak to so if they don't answer then that's another whole level of rejection that that goes on in that conversation and then the counterplay against that of course is you've got two other things going on you've got the the whole tinder stuff which left and right swiping and and just that awful oh Mm. like I just it just feels like the hangman every time I read that those scenes it's just so arbitrarily like Mm. a Roman emperor like you're up you're down except in this case it's side and side so that's a really interesting kind of comment on the role of social media in this Mm. romance or generation Mm. as well isn't it yeah tinder is my living nightmare that i am stuck in for the foreseeable future It's all right. It's nothing but source material. Yeah, but it is the method, isn't it? Like my 20-somethings, yep, quite active on Tinder. That's just the way it works. Contrasting to this, though, is the very Mm. real face-to-face conversations that Mm. Penny's forced to have with her boss, Margot, where there is obviously there's email which in the office, but I mean she gets called into one of the key moments in the novel is she gets called into a face-to-face dressing down with Margot about her Mm. performance at one o'clock in the boardroom. (laughs) Tell us about that scenario for a 20-something, or in in Penny's case. 
Yeah, I think it's really easy. Texting and, and group chats and Tinder, you have a character that, that you hide behind. Well, it's still a version of you and it might be entirely truthful, but it's a different part of you. The screen allows you to, to perform in a different way and it gives you a momentary sliver of, of time to think of a witty response or to be more reasonable or even to separate yourself from whatever's happening. If a text conversation isn't going the way you want it to, you can turn off your phone and walk away from it. Whereas a meeting face-to-face is, you know, one, happening in front of you. There's so much that you're absorbing from that conversation, whether it's the look on someone's face or their tone of voice or the environment or just the energy in the room. And you can't, yeah, you can't just walk away and leave. And it's much harder to be quick and funny and reasonable and rational when you're face-to-face because you're just nervous. They're, they're right there. You can't do anything about it. You've got nothing to hide behind. You're just vulnerable. And especially in performance review or performance management chat with your boss, it's such a vulnerable state to be in that, yeah, I fully understand her, her anxiety attack immediately afterwards. It's a really overwhelming experience. And that contrasted with the text messages is yeah, it's a totally different experience altogether. And it's also, uh, as we were talking about uh, off air, that, that it's so rare. Like so many people have that awful job, the big job mistake mm. that you you leave the security of the job that you've become bored with because you know it when you're the players and the politics and you mm. launch yourself into the different environment and then to only, which with all the great, all the right motives and optimism, et cetera, et cetera, mm. that you're going to make this work. And it just doesn't, the, the, the dynamic yeah. is not there. It's not that Penny's doing a terrible job, but she's being mm. told she's doing an inadequate job. I, I thought it was really interesting that you really wanted to put that bad job experience in the mix. Oh, yeah, it is such a defining part of your 20s, that, that terrible job so many of us have had that terrible job I've had a few and it's like it's a learning experience but you don't know what you've learned until you've left and you don't I don't think that you appreciate how how miserable you are at that bad job until the day you resign and that big flood of relief hits you and it's oh I don't have to show up here tomorrow this is amazing I haven't felt this good since the day I started that's it's such a it's so overwhelming when you have a job that you don't enjoy because it's so much of your week it's 40 hours a week and you wake up miserable because you have to go and spend time there and then you get home and you're you know, miserable because you've had a bad day. So you don't really get a break from how awful it is to have that bad job. And of course, it colours your whole worldview. If you're miserable 40 hours a week, you're not going to be able to switch that off once the weekend hits. It's that weight is going to carry with you no matter where you go until you suddenly aren't in that job anymore or until your mindset changes so yeah poor penny going through it (laughs) oh yeah what's really interesting too is that so you're layering up on penny that she's got a few Mm. relationship issues with her girlfriends because their lives are slightly going in different directions at the moment Mm. she's got the whole max conundrum which everyone except penny can say that max needs Mm. to go and she's not ready to let go Mm. and then we've got the job situation because margot's just a bit of a nightmare riding her ass the whole way through but there's also and this is I thought was a really interesting it's integral to the novel but I was about to say overlay is Penny's mental mental health Mm -hmm. is not great at this stage in the novel either so she's being impacted upon but equally Mm -hmm. how she processes how she's impacted upon is really part of the problem as well isn't it yeah um so I mean 
Penny needed everything to go wrong. She couldn't be one of the characters who her love life is flailing, but her career is going really well and she can hang on to one but not the other. It needed to be everything collapsing in on her to spur her on to make a change. But it worked in the inverse as well because it was everything was going wrong because she wasn't well, because her mental health was not great. She was made sure that she sabotaged all of her relationships and she didn't have the energy to care about her job. And so all of her negative self-beliefs had to be reconfirmed day to day by being in the wrong relationship, by not enjoying her job and by every time she is unwell, it influences everything she does. So she couldn't get better without getting worse and things couldn't get better because she was so unwell. So it was this awful self-perpetuating cycle that needed to really hit rock bottom to improve and poor thing she does eventually but from there she had so much room to grow and so much could improve for her once once that domino fell and it was time to to rise up again she had so much space to do that and it meant that she really earned her happy ending so I was just so proud of her by the end of it yeah no she does and it's because the reader has that bird's eye view of the narrative mm. is that we, we know fairly early on that her mother walked out when she was a baby. So yeah. her father's tried to cope with raising her and her brother, but her brother's gone off to live in London. Her father lives out of Melbourne, like that, out of Melbourne mm. suburbs, so he's not immediate to her life. Part of the great unravelling that's really important is these two other characters that we're going to get to is Dr Minnick, who's the psychologist mm. that she sees reluctantly let's be fair one of her <laughs> girlfriends has made the appointment and the only reason she goes to see Dr Minnick is because she realizes that if she cancels she's going to have to pay the fee anyway and I think what's really interesting about the way you drew Dr Minnick is that she is really only about a decade older than mm-hmm. Penny isn't she that you made her yeah. young and relatable. So we know after unpacking a bit of Penny's trauma that without having that mother role around her she's looking for, for nurture and care and not every time she doesn't find it, it's very painful. And so Margot is one of the main women in her life and she's not at all nurturing or caring. And then we've got a Dr. Minnick who is quite nurturing, but it's not a gentle, everything's okay, you're wonderful nurture. It's she's telling her the truth that you're you are complicit in all of these bad decisions and all of these bad habits. And okay, I don't like that. That is uncomfortable for me to hear. No, thank you. I'm I'm leaving. So she breaks up with poor Dr. Minnick three or four times before she accepts that, oh no, this is a safe place. It's just an uncomfortable conversation to have. So yeah, poor Penny is trying to solve her childhood trauma in every relationship that she has, whether they're professional, platonic, romantic, any of them. She is a wounded small child who's who's looking for for either comfort or continuity and it she has to work through a lot before she's ready to to make those changes yeah poor thing and interestingly so she's flatting with a guy called leo and leo is just wonderful we love leo she's so in such a bad headspace that even her relationship with her flatmates his house he owns it she's renting the tiny spare bedroom on a worker's cottage in in richmond he's a little bit older he's 31 to her 26 she's turning 27 he's a lot more stable than she's although he's got his own issues which we'll talk about a bit later but i thought it was really interesting that like 
she doesn't realize that coming home to that house is like her safe place that he she's quite happy for leo to see her melting and and lying on the couch with a cup of valiums and a bottle of wine because she just has had a (laughs) shockingly bad day or it's various states of disarray drunkenness or with a face mask on or all that kind of stuff so you talk about how important Dr Minnick is but I also felt that Leo was really important even though Penny didn't realize it for her Mm. getting a better perspective on where she needs to be in life yeah you say Leo is a little bit older and he's a lot more comfortable in himself than probably any other character in in the novel and so that kind of stabilizing influence um she doesn't know how stable he is. She doesn't know that it's happening, but his kind of softness and calmness and security is a safe place. It is very much home. That relationship is homey and comfortable and safe. And it, yeah, it takes her risking losing that to appreciate how good it is and how safe it is. And it speaks to her unwillingness to, to get involved and risk screwing it up because it is, it's the only safe place. And she doesn't see they've been flooding for a while. He was in a long-term relationship. Then that relationship's mm-hmm. broken and he's mm-hmm. decided to do the Tinder thing. So he's basically dating yeah. four or five nights a week, different yeah. girl, like always a different roundabout, never mm-hmm. the same girl. And because he, he's, he's developed a commitment for, what did you call it, bacheloring? Yeah. He's bacheloring. That mm-hmm. also puts him out of bounds for Penny because that's not, she just sees him as completely unavailable in, in the ways that she wants Max to be available. So it's a lovely tension too between what's in front of her nose (laughs) that she can't see on both counts, isn't it? Yeah. Leo is someone else's max for sure. She can, it's funny that she can see all of Leo's red flags without also seeing them immediately in front of her with Max. I'm glad that she has a little bit of perspective there, but yeah, not enough to see that all the ways that he isn't like Max and the way that he, he treats her completely honestly and fairly and, and gently. Leo does a lot of growing himself in seeing the impact of his actions on other women. He sees them happening to Penny when Max treats her the same way. So that his uh, Penny's vulnerability pushes Leo's arc along as well. But they do. They have a beautiful little friendship that, that turns into something lovely. And it's all, it was such a joy writing them as well because yeah. they were just fun. Their chemistry was just lovely. But I love the fact that you didn't make it easy on them. I don't want to give anything away because people need to read no. it. But even when you think they're finally beginning to see each other in a different way, you still mm-hmm. throw them a curveball and keep keep it. Uh, you do it really well because so often romance can be a little bit formulaic. There is a formula for romance as, as there is for crime, for instance. Mm-hmm. But I love the way that you play with the, play with the form um, mm-hmm. to make it realistic for a different a generation that's not looking to be saved either penny's not looking to be saved but no she's trying to save herself from herself if anything isn't she yeah yeah i think that penny would enjoy being saved in theory she wants someone to come in and and make it all better but the problem is that she's the one that's making it worse so even when someone swoops in to save her she's right there screwing it up again so even if someone is willing to save her there's no there's no doing it she has to be the one to do it because she is the problem basically. yes exactly um, exactly so and even once they establish that okay there is something here it's not enough 
to have just a mutual interest. She still has things to work through before she can be in the right relationship. So it's not a matter of just the right person. It's the right person at the right time when you're open to it. So there was a lot of hurdles for her to jump before she was ready for for happiness in any form, whether that was in her friendships or romantic relationships or at work. And also, like, you didn't, I think it was really important too that, like, whatever the romantic resolution was, that that wasn't a rebound from mm. a bad place, that she, like you were mm. saying earlier, that she her character needed to grow so that we felt satisfied at the end of the novel. That's your bargain with the reader, isn't it, that you felt satisfied yeah. at the end of the novel that Penny had reached a better place and she was stable or more stable yeah. in that place than yeah. she was when we first met her, when she was completely not. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And we give her a happy ending, but the ending could have been different and mm. she could have ridden herself off into the sunset and that would have been just as valid a choice and she would have been just as okay at, at the end of it because she was better. It wasn't, yes, her circumstances had improved, but she would have still been just as miserable in different relationships in a different workplace if she herself hadn't made such wonderful progress. Her love story is with herself in the end more than anything. And don't I also feel that she's comparing her circumstances to people like Beck, who's on, you know, on the marriage mm. path because she's sick of being a renter, she's sick of this, she's sick of whatever. But I also think it's that, that, that need to also in your 20s is to figure out what you don't want out of life is mm. just as important yeah. as figuring out what you do want out of life and so yeah. there is an element too that Penny's actively rejecting the Beck model as well you mm. know or, or, and, and the work model that she's accepted and as well right. as the sexual relationship model that she's accepted. Yeah it's it is hard to learn you don't know what you don't want until you've already been through it and gone okay not for me no thank you and that is an exhausting task but can I just know what I want and be exactly right about it as soon as I get it? No, usually not. And it's tiring, but it is the, the better way to learn. And you don't know until you've been through it. Hmm, exactly. I think um, it's really important to, like, Penny is mm -hmm. the one whose lens we're really looking at the entire novel mm -hmm. through. Everyone, as you were saying, has difficulties around mm. her. Annie's got love life issues, but her career mm. is like going gangbusters. Beck is really like really overcompensating with her relationship with Evan, mm. who sounds like such a drip. <laughs> and yeah. and obviously, I think even Max has lots of issues that he's not mm. dealing with. And apart from the fact that he's obviously still seeing Amber, Penny's replacement model, in inverted mm. commas, behind mm. her back as well. Um, and and we have one very well um, and, and I, sorry before I go on to the one very well adjusted character we also have this issue that you tease out through the novel about the fact mm. that Penny's mother left when Penny was a baby and so she hasn't mm. uh, had a mother figure in her life and I really reflect especially reading it the second time really reflected on how important that is in playing into mm. her relationship not only with her peer group but with her boss and senior yeah. women in in her business life did you did was was that something that you came into the story knowing or did that kind of get teased out for you as you were writing it that certainly got teased out for for her once i started writing penny and i saw all the things that she was struggling with i had to go from my own therapy experience go back and go okay where did this start from why we don't show up to our 21st birthday broken and confused and overwhelmed. That starts a lot earlier. 
And so we had to go back and figure out, okay, what could have happened in her life that led her to believe that she's so fundamentally unlovable and that she needs so much from so many people? What was she missing to, to create that, that need inside her? And parental abandonment is such a huge, devastating kind of trauma for anyone. But we also, we experience traumas in our childhood and then we just get up and move on and we don't really pay them much mind. It's how life's always been. So why should that inform my experience? Because I've never had the mother. So how can her absence have meant anything? But it did. And she internalized it and made it about herself and made that color her self-esteem from, you know, infancy, basically. And so her seeking comfort and nurturing in anyone who will give it to her is, yeah, it makes sense when she knows that part of her backstory. And every time she doesn't get it from, from anyone, from Margot, from Max, from her friends, it is like being abandoned all over again. It's so painful when there's any rejection because it feeds back into this decades-old wound inside her that she's not enough, that there's something wrong with her, and that everyone who is supposed to love her will eventually leave, which is a very heavy topic for a rom-com to explore. Yeah. And so we really wouldn't have touched on it without therapy but with the therapy scenes it became important to okay let's understand why she's like this she's not just needy and selfish it's it starts much earlier and that part of her needed to heal before she could move on to happier more well-adjusted people like like someone let's just go to leo because he's a dish oh he's a gorgeous he's just gorgeous i like the fact that uh, so one of the reasons i was prompted to go back and reread it there's something he says at the end of the novel that i was like hang on i missed that bit and it's the bit Uh about so what happens is uh let's just explain who leo is in her life and then i can and then i can go back to my other part of that question (laughs) explain to me Uh, how penny knows leo and so Leo is Penny's housemate. They met through Beck, who I think he went to uni with a million years ago. So he's one of those kind of satellite friends that we all have with, you know, old Facebook friends with, and we have good opinions of them, but we're not that close. They found a way to each other and, and moved in together as, as flatmates, but didn't know each other particularly well for a long time because he was in a long relationship with his previous partner and just spent all his time there. They break up off camera before the novel starts and he's suddenly back in the house all the time and they, you know, they live in the same house. They're going to hang out a lot. They're going to get along. They're going to start learning things about each other. And yeah, so he's the only drama-free relationship that she has for most of the novel. And, and um, we need to also point out that he's hardly ever home now. He's split up with his long-term girlfriend mm-hmm. because he's the king of Tinder. And I think she actually said yeah. at one point, you're basically mm-hmm. going on dates with anyone within a five-kilometre radius of this house. Yeah. And he said, oh, come on, mm-hmm. 10 kilometres. But even though they are sharing a house together and it's his house, mm-hmm. uh, he's actually not available to her anyway because mm-hmm. he's kind of, going on the rampage as it were yeah he's bacheloring very hard he's overcompensating for his lost years in his relationship which should appeal to penny that unavailability should be all that she's she's looking for but because so many other people around her are so unavailable his unavailability doesn't doesn't really touch the sides of, of hers and he makes time for her when she needs it which is a contrast to so many other people in her life and it's so meaningful that oh yeah he's out four nights a week with the different women but 
if I'm having a crisis, he's right there. We're at the cafe together because I had a bad day. So we made time. Just so, so lovely. I love that for him. And, and he's also, he's very comfortable in his masculinity because he's quite happy to watch yeah. Fleabag and have yeah. cucumber masks on and generally do stuff that it's is bad. not much in that classic sense so I, I think love, there's a yeah. it's like the pajama party kind of friendship to it as well mm-hmm. I think when Penny sees comfort in him because he's one of the girls yeah and he's totally comfortable in his masculinity I love that and I love any man that's yeah. like that doesn't have to perform masculinity in that way so that's another reason why he's just a little dream boat because that's the dream I want a boyfriend that I can do face masks <laughs> So, yeah, it's it's very much a comfortable relationship in all the ways, in that it's very soft and it's very safe and it's home in in so many ways. So their time together is always very easy for for her because there's no no performing. The, The jig is already up. He's already seen her in a slimy green face mask. There's no need to be on for Leo because, yeah, they're just friends and it's just easy and it's just comfortable. And he's seen her at her worst as well. Also what I wanted to say, going back on with Leo, is not only is he comfortable in his own skin as a human being, he is a little bit older than her. He's 31, she's Mm. 26. But it's also that he's seen her melt. Like he's the the safety she feels with him to let her guard down is because he already has seen her, what she's like when she's had a panic attack or when she's had a massive anxiety moment. He's seen her how she relates to Max as well. So I think there's more to the nuts and bolts of the story. It's a romance. We've gone through all the negative stuff. Oh, my goodness. All the heavy heavy stuff. Yeah, Yeah. yeah. All the reasons, all the stuff that's weighing Penny down, shall we put it that way, yeah. you know. So let's go mm. to the lift, lift us up space. <laughs> uh, you touched on it before when you talked about her needing to see Dr. Minnick and to walk through for herself. She needed to walk through the fact that she has this anxiety at the heart of mm. who she is because of the abandonment issues. But what was really lovely about this is how you played unavailability between the two characters. Mm. So can we just talk a little bit about what, your vision is for a romance today like we're Mm. not talking mills and boons here we're talking a fresh take on romance in in literature versus romance in real life i'm good at the former and not so good at the latter which is probably why probably why i have to turn it into fiction because i have some control over it and i can yes it can be perfect on on paper in a way that it really is in real life but it was important for me for them to be equals and to arrive at this sensibly and to earn it we I feel that there is plenty of foreshadowing from the second chapter onwards when they first Penny and Leo first meet on the page there is yep I can see maybe because I'm too close to it yes end game starts right there but there is a whole lot of journeying to go on before they get to that point both of them need to grow and change and of course it being first person present tense Penny is the the growth that we see but Leo is changing a whole long the way as well. He goes from this toxic bachelor type who's very Max-ish to being vulnerable and safe and generous with one person in particular. So all those times we think, no, I can change him. This time we made it true. So that's nice. But yeah, they had to be, they had to be equals and they both had to be ready for it at the right time. And I didn't also want him to be this doormat that she could walk all over and treat terribly and he's just there following along like a lovesick little puppy and takes it takes all of her bad behavior and just forgives her for it that isn't reflective of life it's not 
satisfying for the reader, but it's not fair for poor Leo, who's just lovely and deserves everything that, that he gets in the end, but doesn't deserve the treatment that he gets to get there. So that's that element of realism to it and the push-pull and the, the security that he has and the his ability to say, no, I deserve better, do better, was an important an important part for, for me there because, yeah, he had to, she had to earn her happy ending and he had to make sure that he deserved what he got as well. Yeah, and I think going back to what you just said before about Leo changing, it's not all because of Penny either. And there's, I think there's also that what I liked about the writing was the fact that we got to see his arc of him needing mm. to cut loose and it's almost like a brotherly affection from Leo towards Penny to start with and mm. then, then evolves. And, of course, like all relationships in real life, they evolve at a different pace to each yeah. other and that's okay. where a lot of the narrative tension comes in as well, isn't it? Yeah. And yeah, he doesn't change for Penny, but mm. I think his insight into Penny could be any of the women he, he dates early in the book, and he's seeing the other side of the effect of that behaviour. He's very much Max to some other off-screen girl, and seeing Penny come home and be undone and the, the sitting around and waiting and the stressing about it, knowing that, oh, I'm doing that to someone else and refusing to take responsibility because I'm upfront about it, the same way that Max is upfront about it a really a really interesting perspective let's just just finish off today to talk about the writing because as as you well know mm -hmm. everyone who's a writer loves to hear about other people's writing processes love to hear about everyone's writing journeys and if you're mm -hmm. not published it's like aspirational to hear to hear how you yeah. got there how do i do it yeah yeah, yeah. We're, we've all been at the beginning of it and we're all in different places in the journey so let's start you mentioned right at the beginning about it's 15 years to, to become a writer at what point in your life did you go I want to be a writer so I apparently always wanted to be a writer a few years ago at my grandfather's like 85th birthday or something there were a bunch of his 85 year old peers who hadn't seen me in you know 25 years going are you a writer yet you always wanted to be a journalist last time I saw you when you were four. Oh, what did I okay great I've always wanted to be a writer so that has has been with me for a long time longer than I remember and I wrote bits and pieces of drippy fiction in, in high school that never went anywhere. And if I read them again now, would just be mortified at how terrible it was. And I did a creative writing degree once I got to uni because I love stories and wanted to write, but I didn't know where that might go. I thought I'd like to go into film maybe, but it just didn't end up being my medium. So I stuck with writing in some capacity from there onward. And as I left uni, I thought I'd like to write short fiction and essays, but never got any traction with, with any of that and eventually became an advertising copywriter. So I was writing in that capacity. I was paying the bills with writing, but it's not the same at all. And you don't write creatively when you're writing full-time for work as well. It just saps that energy from you. So I didn't write for the longest time. But then my 30th birthday was around the corner and I thought, oh, I haven't got anything to show for this. I, I'm happy with my life, but I don't have this like crowning achievement. I've got friends who have had babies and they're just in love with their, their little people, but I don't baby in, in that sense. So I needed to write my novel before I turned 30 for my self-esteem. I had to tick that one off and be proud of myself for that. I started this about mm, three or four months after my 28th birthday. So I had a little bit under a year and a half to, to get it written. And I did. 
So that's how that it came to be out of pure just social pressure of aging, basically. <laughs> or, or maybe personal pressure about achieving goals that yeah. you that you like aspirations yeah. are only ever aspirations if you never act upon them, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. It was for me to live with myself. It was all all my pressure and my you know nervous breakdown at, at getting it written. But I got it written, and the self satisfaction is immense. And the thing too that, as you well know now, is mm. writing a novel is a massive achievement in and of itself. A hundred thousand mm. odd words is a lot of words, but it's a very different part of the process. To like, it's not a book until you mm. go through the publication process, is it? So, I mean, yeah. tell us a little bit about how you got an agent and that sort of path. To- so I, an important part of the story is that I, in the middle of lockdown, joined a writing group that met on Zoom every fortnight. And so this was the first time since university that I was showing my work to other people and getting constructive feedback and understanding what it meant to write a very long form piece. That feedback from them was important to shape the story and to improve as a writer but they also opened up my mind to the concept of a manuscript assessor which I didn't know existed before I joined the group I didn't would never have thought to fathom that a manuscript assessor exists and I knew that publishing is an odd fickle small pool and that I only had a couple of chances to meet with publishers or submit work and get my work written Uh, before it was just a complete write-off and no, this person has written three terrible novels and we're no longer opening emails from her. So I needed my manuscript to be in perfect shape before I sent it off to anywhere. So I reached out to a manuscript assessor and paid a very large chunk of money to get it written and have notes made for that, which I was, again, happy to do because I wanted it to be perfect and you know, infallible before it went anywhere. From there, she gave me a couple of names that she thought Uh, might be interested in a novel like this or a couple of agents from a couple of different agencies who might be a good fit for it because otherwise, again, you're just sending it to a blank inbox and hoping that the right person picks up on it. So I was very fortunate in that regard. And I had a couple of agents come back and and read the first couple of chapters and respond to it really positively. And then I just connected best with Jane Novak, who's my agent now. I loved her. And no relation. (laughs) <laughs> no relation, no nepotism at play, just a super common text. But yeah, I enjoyed her energy and she responded really well to the text. So I thought, yes, let's go with her. And from there, we made a short list of the right publishers for a novel like this, who she knew would handle it, who would receive this kind of story and who could treat it with the kind of care and enthusiasm that it required. And then we landed on Collins with Anna Voldinger, who is just a little ray of sunshine who who we love, our our shared publisher. That's how we ended up here. But it's gone very fast, especially by publishing standards. It's I only posted on Instagram this morning that today a year ago, I finished the final draft of this novel. And tomorrow it's on shelves. So very fast. Yeah. And it is anyway, how did you find like you had a manuscript assessment that you know, which is obviously mm. a blessing in this scenario. Mm. And then how did that set up your expectations for what the editorial process would be like? Because I'm just imagining you're going, well, all the work's done now. Done. <laughs> and then, yes. and, yeah, um, you go into well, editorial and they're like pulling it all apart again and <laughs> putting yeah. it back together. Um, I, I think me having so much of a Penny's neuroticism helped in that it was very tight. The manuscript didn't need a lot of changing by the time it got to to editorial. But like I said, having gone to uni for creative writing, having been in writing groups, and now having been to the manuscript assessor, you 
develop a thicker skin for those criticisms because it's coming from a place of constructive care. It's it's rarely, I hated this character, change everything about it. It's just bad. So once you realise that the you let down the vulnerability guard, you just go, okay, here's my work. Let's look at it as a project instead of a reflection of everything and all of my hopes and dreams onto a page. But it's still, you get attached to certain little bits and pieces or one little turn of phrase that you just fall in love with and your editor says, it doesn't make sense and I don't like it and it wasn't funny, so it's going. <laughs> it's sometimes a devastating experience. But you move on. It's fine. if Getting that distance from your work is important because otherwise, yeah, as a writer, it will just wound you forever that someone doesn't love every single line and full stop in your, in your work. <laughs> Just got to let it go. And then, of course, there's that wonderful, uh, so you finish all of this and then you you, you finally, the book's gone off to the printers, which is always one of my favourite moments because you can't change anything anymore. But then the anxiety sets in, doesn't it? It's like just as you're leading into publication, I always describe it as my emperor's new clothes moment just before a book comes out when everyone's going to laugh at me and tell me that this is the biggest load of rubbish I've ever read, one star or no stars or whatever. trick all these people into buying your dreadful work? You have no talent you are a hack and all that if you're lucky enough to get a review in a, in print mm. media it's just going to slam the book and it's like you say like it is a project and you do have to divorce yourself as a person mm. from the work but equally mm. you created this work so it's really yeah. hard to go it's a separate being to to me yeah. as well so have you been a nervous wreck for the last few weeks or uh, I've been actually I've been okay um I think because I spend so much time in my head and my therapist has worked with me quite a lot in the lead up to this, I've kind of, I knew that I would be so nervous about it. So I've done everything I could to, to barrier myself against it. And today I'm feeling a little nervous and I think tomorrow I will be very sweaty and embarrassed and hate everything. But so far everyone has been just super duper lovely and most of the kind of immediate feedback I'm getting is from Instagrammers and book talkers and, and things like that. So Everyone has been super lovely there. I have had one kind of full objective review from an industry publication that was really lovely and they had one point of criticism and I have not stopped thinking about it for about a month and a half. And it wasn't even criticism. It was just that this, whatever, was was this. And no, have not stopped thinking about it for a single minute. And so that when there is the first true negative review comes through, don't call. I'll be on my shower floor crying and just... Don't read them. No, but I have to. I will be up at 2am. I think you have to protect yourself a little bit too because the book is separate to you as a human being. And I always feel like once it's out in the universe, we've both Mm. got a book out, you're about to tomorrow, Mm. I've got a a new book out at the moment, is I have no control over it anymore and how people react to your book, to your writing is so Mm. dependent on their own lens and their own set of experiences. I actually have had someone, by the way, on Goodreads say in capital letters too, so very shouty, um, actually Mm. say, I can't believe I paid money for this book. This (laughs) book was terrible um, and Mm -hmm. it was a bloke and I just gave this big rant. He said, I'm not, and I just want you to be clear that I'm not being paid to comment on here. This is my own hard-earned money. And I just, I have to tell you, I'll be honest, I did laugh, not at him but just like like why would you waste your time and energy posting that like why don't you just go I hated this book and throw it against the wall and just be done like 
there's so much energy to to carry with you as yes. well, and it is it's more about them and their need for to you know just carrying so much negativity, and they have to get it out somehow. So they're just directing it, yeah. directing it at you. So I'm just sharing um, that yeah, with you so that so that if someone does that to you, you can go, oh, mm. I'm not alone. Meredith, you know, had someone, yeah. you know, shouted her on Goodreads. <laughs> that solidarity is much appreciated. Yeah, I think you'll find, I think you will find that the community, the writing community, the bookstagram mm. community, et cetera, is generally a massively wonderful bunch of people who yeah. just love books. So it shouldn't be a problem. Now, the other thing everyone yeah. always wants to know about is writing rituals. Tell us a little bit about, have you set, did you get yourself into a rhythm? Did you get yourself into a routine with? I, so No Hard Feelings was easier in, in that regard because we were in lockdown in Melbourne. So the lockdown was endless for nearly two years. So I had every excuse not to leave the house. I had nothing to do but sit around and write. Me and my dog in the apartment and I got through all of Netflix in about two weeks. So there was nothing else to do. I do still work full time. So I'm fitting in writing around that. But, you know, if I stay at my desk for an extra hour or two after I sign out of, of Teams and my email, then okay, I can get a good couple thousand words written. And then every weekend was dedicated to writing to get that done. So the highlight of that whole experience was getting to leave the house on a Saturday morning to go out and buy a coffee and a croissant. And then I would sit down and start writing and work through those. So that was a beautiful routine for that one. For the next manuscript that I'm working on is... is a little more difficult without lockdown because there are just so many other things to do and there's wonderful promo stuff to do for No Hard Feelings and there just isn't the same amount of time to get it done. So it's proving a little bit more frustrating, but the coffee and croissants are consistent. So that's, you know, can't complain about that. Yeah, no, that's, I'm glad that there's a work in progress. And have you, are you writing another romantic drama or have you decided to change tack? No, so staying staying within the genre, this one shouldn't be as as emotionally heavy as No Hard Feelings. I think I decided to give myself a little bit of a break and my heart could relax a little for, for this one so it won't centre around mental health in the same way. But And I know that a story can change very much from the first time you sit down to write it versus how it ends up being on the shelf. So I won't go into too much detail about it, but... The basic premise is that a serial monogamist takes some time off dating and doesn't do a very good job. This one is much more fun and she's very funny and very humor-wise. It's, it's a lot of fun and I've been laughing at myself, which is always the best. I'm my favourite audience, so I'm enjoying it. That is so important. I'm really glad that you said that when you're writing that first draft, it is for yourself. <laughs> and if you yep. don't touch your own heart, don't make yourself laugh, don't have all those magic yeah. moments, then it shows in the writing, I reckon, don't you? That yeah. it just, you need to, yeah. there's an element of you've got to put your heart on the page yeah. if you want other you can, people to respond to that. Yeah, you can tell when an author has loved what they're doing and there's, there's warmth to it. And I certainly feel like I'm all over the pages of No Hard Feelings. And there are particular scenes I feel that read much more warmly and very richly because you can, yes, I have found my groove in this and I really love this scene in particular, whereas this one I don't love as much. And I think you can you can see that. And it's so much more enjoyable when you read a when you read a book and how much fun that author had writing it. You can you can feel that. And there's such a large sacrifice of your time. If you're not having fun in mm. the writing, then 
there's so many other things to do. <laughs> sure. There's always a million wonderful excuses not to write. <laughs> and I don't, I don't think anyone except other writers appreciate how grueling the writing process is. Thinking about writing is great and sitting down to write is great and having written is wonderful, but the actual process of writing isn't always all that fun and you just want to do anything else. So if you can do anything else or you're not having fun, step away from your manuscript and come back to it in a better mood because the work is going to be infinitely better. Yeah, I totally agree with that. You need to see the feel the joy on the page. But also, there's the yeah. other side of that is also, but if you're just making excuses to procrastinate, then you're not allowed to do mm. that either. If you're having a really bad yeah. energy day, yes, step away mm. from the device and wait yeah. till another day. But if you yeah. just go doing it because you're like, it's hard, then that's not Oh, quite. it'll never get written. Yeah. It'll never get written. Yeah, and sometimes yeah. it does plod and sometimes it races through. Genevieve, it's been yeah. so lovely to meet you. It's I'm Thank so you. thrilled for you. I'm just going to hold up the book for everyone. Can you hold up your copy too so we can just yes, see yes. the beautiful cover that's coming with <laughs> I think No Hard Feelings by Genevieve Novak out tomorrow. So probably by the time this podcast goes out, it's out in the world. Wishing you every success with the book uh, and your writing you. career generally and hopefully we will get to meet in real life at some other event at some time and enjoy the publicity process and uh, let's talk again soon beautiful thank you so much for having me i've had a really lovely time thanks for listening to rights for women i hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest if you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>